Hi everyone, Boris here. Sorry for the quick interruption, but I have to tell you about some exciting new job openings that are added to the LogTechies job board. Have you heard of the LogTechies job board? LogTechies is the first hand-curated job board for the field of logistics technology. That's where I post the coolest LogTech jobs at those companies that I currently find the most interesting. Brand new to the board is Bex Technologies from Stuttgart, Germany. Bex is building a logistics platform for the construction industry that helps companies coordinate deliveries to construction sites. I've had CEO and co-founder Leonard Paul on the podcast before, and I know they're going places. Right now, they're hiring for a number of exciting roles, including a CFO, COO, and a head of logistics. Alaiko from Munich, Germany is another new addition to the LogTechies job board. Alaiko offers seamless e-commerce fulfillment for fast-rising online shops and e-commerce brands. The company raised $30 million in a Series A round earlier this year and is now on an ambitious growth trajectory. They are looking to fill a number of sales roles, for example, for junior as well as for seasoned professionals. You should definitely take a look at Alaiko's openings. Aside from Bex Technologies and Alaiko, you will also find exciting roles from TradeLink, Noise Technologies, FanRide, Sender and others. Please have a look and follow the board so you can stay updated on when new companies and jobs get added. You find the LogTechies job board at LogTechies.com. L-O-G-T-E-C-H-I-E-S.com. LogTechies.com. All right, and now let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the Logistics Tribe. I'm your host, Boris Felgendreyer, and my guest today is John Etherton, a trusted confidant of mine that I've known for many years and who is a bona fide expert when it comes to technology that enables modern supply chain management. John and I have a joint history that we will briefly touch on before we get into an awesome conversation on the evolution of tech that enables organizations to manage their global supply chains through the chaos that we have come to call the new normal these days. John currently works for Accenture, where he is the global lead for supply chain and operations at the Accenture Amazon Web Services Business Group, a joint venture between Accenture and AWS. Before we get started, a quick thanks to our supporters, Gray Orange. Gray Orange automates warehouse operations through a combination of AI software and autonomous mobile robots. Gray Orange systems are in place at some very prominent companies, such as IKEA or the Danish household goods and furniture retailer Jysk. If you're looking to get your warehouse and fulfillment operations to the next level with the help of autonomous robots and automation, you should definitely have Gray Orange on your list. Check them out at grayorange.com. All right, and now we're on to the show with John Atherton from Accenture. Enjoy. Hello, John. Welcome to the Logistics Tribe. Thanks for being on the program, man. Boris, thank you so much for inviting me on. I appreciate that, the Logistics Tribe. I'm a longtime listener, and now I'm actually a participant, so thank you. That's fantastic. Glad to hear that. Glad to hear that. Just calculating, we've known each other for 13 years. I first met you in 2009 when I started with GT Nexus. You were part of the early team there as well. You were part of the founding team of GT Nexus, right? You know, I was, o- Boris. Almost, almost. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, jo- I joined early on in April of 2000. And, wow. and actually, yes. yeah, not a lot of people know, but the company operated under a different name at that time. And uh, sort of a little known fact around the history of GT Nexus is prior to that brand name, it was called Tradient. Tradient, yes. And... <laughs> Yeah, and our, our initial business model was really to be the Expedia of container shipping, right? Make bookings uh-huh. in one place across many carriers and 
we soon got into other areas of business like managing freight rates and that sort of thing. And then reverse auctions were super hot in the dot-com early 2000s. And sure. eventually when we <laughs> connected with a consortium of carriers, nine or 10 ocean carriers, you know, they didn't quite like this idea of reverse auction that some other mm -hmm. companies were doing because by definition in reverse auction, as you know, the rates go down in any case, because of that perception um, along with that transaction where we recruited these carriers on, we went through a rebranding and we became GT Nexus. Yeah, it's funny because when I tell my story about GT Nexus, I always describe it as I was one of the first people on the ground in Europe in 2009 and I called it, it was a startup world. And it was, but the company was already nine years old at the time. I oftentimes forget. Well, you, yeah, we went through many phases there of growth. I mean, we can talk a little bit more about it, but uh, yeah, early on it was, it was pretty basic, you know, it was sort of this idea of taking a page out of the airline reservation system, right? Where, where passengers like you and me could go to a central place to look up a price for a flight from A to B and then book on a carrier of our choice. And so to take that model, in fact, we had one of the board members and founders of Sabre Technologies on our board. And so that was the link between passenger mm -hmm. air reservation systems and, and our original model. Of course, we weren't alone at the time. Um, we were partnering primarily with uh, APL uh, out of uh, Singapore at the time and, and a couple other Asian carriers and Intra, of course. We're recruiting a number of carriers, primarily in Europe. I mean, not exclusively. Partnering with Maersk Line, for example, and uh, and then evolutions of of the company, and and uh, you know, we grew our value proposition and our products, and brought in more experts like you as we expanded across geographies and, and industries. Yeah, it was a pretty exciting path. Yeah, talking about expert, when I look at your expertise, I mean, you've been in the business of logistics and supply chain prior to that, and then the last what twenty years or so, you really became an expert in the everything technology related, right? You're the technology that makes supply chains and modern logistics run. That's kind of the, the topic I want to touch on today as well. But give us a little bit of a sense of where you were before GT Nexus and how then you kind of got stuck with technology and what you've, what you've done since. Sure. Before GT Nexus, I worked for Sealand. And as many of you may remember, this was uh, <laughs> the, the largest U.S. flagged container shipping line in fact, the founder of Sealand, so you guys can all look this up, was um, Malcolm McLean, who many look to to be the inventor. Who invented, of, who invented the, the container. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah That's that, history right there. Man. <laughs> it, it really is. It really is. Yeah, sort of in the 1950s, as the story goes. And, you know, that became Sealand uh, and a couple other brands in the domestic market. But um, I joined them as sort of a young didn't know really anything about container shipping, let alone technology. Um, but I had an interest in cartography and mapping. I actually hmm. majored in that as an undergrad in college. I wanted That's to super try geeky. cartography. Who who majors in cartography? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Crazy. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I guess I, I didn't really realize it, but but this idea of mapping and location, of course, has gone mainstream and is super critical uh, in all areas yeah. of commerce and. I wasn't quite quite that smart uh, to to see that coming, but but I did have this this love for maps, and you know we subscribed to National Geographic, and the, that magazine came every month to our house, and I was super interested in faraway places, you know, like uh -huh. the Straits of Malacca and uh, <laughs> and Zungarian's Gate, which is you know one of the Trans-Siberian Railroad uh, mountain passes. And uh -huh. um, I ended up uh, joining Sealand, yeah, in uh, sort of the late 90s, 
that's where I first learned about international logistics and trade and how that all works and transport. Um, but then, yeah, I, I moved into uh, the technology space, as I mentioned, with GT Nexus in 2000. And by that point, I knew a fair amount, you know, about how international ocean container shipping worked. But I, I didn't know much about technology. Um, but that afforded me the opportunity to bring those two together. So I was a product manager at GT Nexus uh, in my first couple roles there, which was really the first um, deeper dive into technology. And so, yeah, I learned about databases and applications and user interface and applications programming interfaces, APIs and EDI and all this stuff, which is great. And yeah, and since that time, I've gone deeper into into technology uh, that we can talk a little bit more uh, as, as our conversation unfolds for us. But um, that's, that's really where I feel comfortable and I'm interested at, at the intersection of supply chain, technology, and also sort of business value and innovation. Yeah. And if you look back across all of the time that you spent in that space, what for you were the, the major milestones in terms of technology, adoption of technology? What was the big game changers? Well, I think, you know, really early on in 2000, it was it was a tough sell. It was a lot of evangelizing for this thing called the cloud. Which wasn't called the cloud in 2000, right? Yeah, which was, I guess it was called the internet. <laughs> the internet. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but then also, okay, yeah, I remember the time when, when people couldn't tell the difference between internet and cloud. They were saying, well, cloud, that's still, I'm still using the internet. How is that different, right? So tz apart so the first generation was just moving stuff onto the web where it's not manual it's not analog it's not fax and it's not email but it's it's managed somewhere via the internet that was sort of the first generation when you talk about these marketplaces when you talk about auctions that's that's probably a fair thing to say that was not cloud it was a, a web-based technology which is not quite cloud yet right is that fair to say yeah, that is that is fair to say. I would sort of characterize it by that first wave would be a customer that might take an on-premise technology application or stack and mm -hmm. make it available through a web browser. Mm -hmm. And so th yeah. there, there are advantages there, uh, but the fundamental technology deployment and arrangement is still on-premise, although accessible through the internet. So the next step from there would be applications for supply chain planning or execution that are not hosted on a local client's server in a data center, but maybe hosted by a third party. But the model is still fundamentally the same, which is it's their instance. And yes, their employees can access it through an internet browser anytime globally, which is great. But the next most important change and evolution, as I recall it, was really this idea of a shared cloud infrastructure, meaning mm -hmm. that technology stack, uh, whether for planning and execution or warehousing, uh, this idea of multiple clients accessing the same thing um, was really sort of revolutionary. And, and early on, you know, a lot of clients were anxious. They were nervous about that, that, that how on earth could I, let alone, you know, put my data into, into the cloud or onto the internet, but then in a shared instance with other customers that might even be my competitors. Well, w once we got past that topic of security, because after all, that, that model doesn't work unless you're 100% secure. I think the light bulb started to go off. This idea of customers and partners using the same technology stack could then collaborate around the same business objects on the physical and financial supply chains uh, becomes much more efficient and works at scale. 
the cost to maintain that system can be low because it's amortized or shared across all the customers. Of course, this is sort of what I'm describing as the evolution of a network in the cloud. And, mm-hmm. and that's, that's the model that GT Nexus adopted and, and many others. We weren't alone mm-hmm. uh, at that time. But, but that was really breakthrough, I think, this that sort of evolution one into this idea of a network in the cloud and a shared infrastructure. In hindsight, when you look back, would you have expected this technology to be adopted faster? Of course, we were hoping for it to be adopted faster, but it literally took another decade before it really became mainstream, didn't it? Yeah, that's true. And in some sense, you know, there's still plenty of room to grow. Um, you know, I th- looking back, I think some of the reasons around why we didn't see as rapid adoption as maybe we would have liked, and same with other technology players in the space, is linked to maybe a, a stance or a posture on security. Uh, then also into, as I recall, this idea of changing the way companies thought about their supply chain systems and also the people and the experts that took advantage of that technology. Because technology in the cloud can be configured on the fly. It can rapidly change. You can deploy features quickly. That's a different mentality and approach uh, for, for many companies. And so this idea of talent and reskilling to take advantage of cloud technologies, I think, was a barrier to adoption. Um, and then also this idea of evolution of, of features and functions. You know, the, the further companies mature in that space, the more they need to tailor their solutions to industry-specific approaches. You know, mm-hmm. I think, you know, most people think of the supply chain as being a horizontal, that sort of all customers have the same supply chain challenges, which is true, matching supply and demand. But when you go into the industry level, they're they're much different. Discrete manufacturing versus process versus life sciences, retail, right? They all have their nuances. And so it took us a while to, to start to tailor some of the solutions along the industry lines. Yeah, let's let's take our favorite example, supply chain visibility, as a, as a case in point in the, in the case study. Here we are, 2022, we just almost turned the, turned the bend, turned the corner on the biggest supply chain disruption we've ever experienced with COVID and everything that was related to it. It's not quite over. There's the next one lurking on the horizon with the, the China lockdown and so forth. We don't need to get into all these details, but more and more, I hear the same complaints that companies have that I used to hear 10 years ago, that they don't have the visibility they need to manage their global supply chains. Where did things go wrong? Is the technology not there? What's kept people all these years from developing or getting supply chain visibility that they should have to weather a crisis like this in a a better way, basically? In my own opinion on that, Boris, is that technology is not a barrier. I believe the technology's been there now for a decade. And by this, I mean, you know, the ability to collect information and data from a variety of supply chain partners and systems and get that stuff in one place and, and normalize it and connect objects together, orders and shipments. I, I think the real blocker, again, is not technology, but it's more around adoption and enforcement. In other words, if we have a work with a big anchor client, it's it's fairly easy, of course, to get their systems connected and we provide services or others in the industry to connect their partners. But the enforcement of that and the adoption that the client needs to enforce with their partners is critical. If you look at a uh, an enterprise supply chain, they have probably hundreds of partners uh, that manage one or many parts of their operations on their behalf, but but not all are integrated, not all are focused uh, to the same level uh, as others. And so this this idea of 
uh, enforcement across a constellation of partners and a customer supply chain is key. So that's more about change management, really, and leadership and communication of a strategy, uh, I think, rather than blockers around technology and the inability to integrate EDI, for example. I mean, that's, that's largely been solved. And, and these days, that's even easier with, with APIs and other technology features. Yeah, let's maybe spend some time to think about, yes, the technology is there, but is there really one vendor, for example? Is there one platform? Is there one company that you can turn to to get all your visibility needs met? I don't think there is because the, you still have situations where, well, this player is very, very strong in ocean freight and this player is very, very strong in, in North American truck transports. And there's different pockets of of just greatness and of, of best breed applications for certain kinds of visibility. But I have yet to see one vendor or one platform or one what whatever you want to call it, one network that gives me all of that. Will that ever be the case? Is that even desirable for that to be the case? Or will I always have a situation where if I'm a globally operating company and I want complete supply chain visibility in all my regions down to the item level across all modes of transport, I would need to tap into five, 10 different, different suppliers of that sort of visibility. I agree. I think that's the case. It's unrealistic, maybe even naive to think that there's going to be one universal system that does it all. Right. Supply chains are so complex these days. They they change dynamically and at a rapid pace. And customers that we work with still rely on a, a whole fabric of different kind of fit for purpose applications across that supply chain operating reference model score. Right. From upstream sort of planning and sourcing to manufacturing to fulfillment and service. It's a big wide world out there. So I think that customers will continue to rely on a collection of, of applications and vendors. That being said, sort of the second dimension is, but all those need to somehow at the end of the day connect. And so I do mm -hmm. think that there is an underlying foundational element that customers need to store data that can come from a variety of systems, but eventually get in one place where they can harness the incredible potential in sort of a collection of of data and a range of information across their supply chain. So yes, a variety of systems for business fit for purpose activities, but then a common foundation that connects them together. Yeah. So is this basically what the new breed of digital freight forwarders like the Flexport of the world and Zencargos of the world, what they are building in a, in a small scale, so to speak, for a certain customer segment that goes only through them, they get the entire stack in a more digital way, they got all the integrations, they got all this functionality and all this visibility from one place, but that's not really applicable for anybody that's very, very large and operates and, and uses, I don't know, 10 different logistics providers with different kinds of technology background and so forth. What do you make of where the gap comes in that these new breed of digital freight forwarders are serving? Yeah, I love the idea of a new age, sort of digital first freight forwarder. Uh, you know, typically they're, they're, they're asset light, They're nimble. They're they're leveraging new technologies, primarily cloud native. You know, heavy on on newer elements inside of that, such as machine learning and artificial intelligence. You know, some of those companies that you've mentioned, I think, are off to a great start. They're getting uh, a lot of momentum. Uh, I'm not an expert, really, with any of those companies, but it feels a little bit like their real sweet spot so far has been with small to medium sized businesses. That's a general observation, not not evidenced. And, and you're right. The further up the enterprise ladder you go to the, the biggest of the big global Fortune 100 or 1,000 companies, the more likely it is they'll want that 
4PL capability sort of in their own hands and they maintain control. So I think those companies will have an evolution there to if they decide to start to call on the, the largest of enterprises across industries and, and geographies. And the other thing, at least in, in the case of one of those, this threading the, the needle and playing both sides of the fence, which is neutral technology-based forwarder that can work across a range of providers, but also mm-hmm. providing their own services and wanting to funnel mm-hmm. freight into their network uh, to streamline that and make it more efficient and, and cost-effective for themselves. So that will be an interesting journey uh, for some of those companies to chart in, in the future. Yeah, and let's maybe focus on on the, the big daddies of the world, the, the large global corporations that have complicated global supply chains. And let's go back to the visibility problem because I think that's the most urgent one, that's a very prescient one, that's one that's been talked about forever, but even more so in the last couple of years. What options and capabilities do companies have today that they didn't have, let's say, five years ago? Has there been major breakthroughs and major changes, or is it still the same old that we used to have five years ago, maybe 10 years ago? I think a little of both. You know, Some of the early models that evolved that we talked about before, uh, like, for example, this networked model, right? customers on a shared technology instance, um, remains relevant and, and important. Some of the things that have changed, in my sense, would be the ability to, to gather data is probably easier today than it was before, which, which is really impressive if you think about the explosion of sources of data, especially with Internet of Things, IoT sensors on everything that moves and even maybe standing still inside of a factory. You know, the number of sources of data now is so much more than it was 20 years ago. But technology is advanced and, and the way to collect that data, normalize it for both structured information and unstructured uh, is really a remarkable breakthrough. And so that that's very different. Um, but again, I think it's a combination of a customer who wants to achieve visibility, that they have the right strategy in place, the right level of enforcement with their partners, and that they're thinking about data holistically. You know, I do go back to the playbook of physical and financial supply chains. That's a great way to think about it. The movement of stuff and the movement of money, because those are those are connected and they forever will be. And so collecting data with that in mind uh, is an important part of the strategy. And maybe the last thing I'll add would be, you know, this emergence of all sorts of other information. So here I'm thinking of, for example, on the demand side, customers who need a better way to forecast or predict upcoming demand spikes or troughs, which would be social media um, and other signals, maybe in an unstructured format that are new uh, and can be harnessed if, if captured and, and put to work appropriately. Yeah, so that's pretty exciting, I think. Yeah, what advancements have been made in the area of ensuring data quality? I mean, going back to our shared history, data quality was always an issue in any supply chain, regardless of platform, regardless of, of tools, regardless of partners you use. Of course, there's a scale, there's partners that are better at data quality than others, but you know, this old adage, garbage in, garbage out, is still true. One of the biggest challenges we've always run into is how do I ensure that th- what I'm measuring, what I'm basing my decisions on is actually reliable data? What what progress has been made to ensure data quality? I think the primary advancement in that area of data quality is probably machine learning, right? It's this idea of a more advanced engine that can mm-hmm. can learn, right, as the name suggests, from previous data to make better judgments on future data. So as uh, machine learning-based engines 
you know, go through a series of data, sets of data. These engines can sort of look at and determine where errors are, maybe in timestamps or codes, and then automatically self-correct for that. Now, that, that wasn't the case 20 years ago. So that, that's probably the primary way where this whole idea of data quality is now being solved in a much faster and more automated way and at scale. Right. So these two things go together, which is super important, right? You think about the explosion of sources of data, billions of data points. The importance of getting data quality right, right, is heightened. And to do that manually or in a semi-automated way just is insufficient and won't scale. And that's mm -hmm. where this idea of machine learning and even artificial intelligence becomes that much more important uh, to tackle inequalities in data levels, but also at the scale and also at the pace. Uh, that customers need. Yeah, so mm -hmm. that, that's a really important evolution. And in terms of cloud, we're going to talk about Amazon Web Services in a second here uh, because you're, you're very close to that joint venture with Accenture, of course. But talk to me about the advancements that have been made in cloud. I mean, I can, I can already guess it's gotten cheaper, it's gotten faster, it's gotten more potent. But, but give me more specifics as to how quickly cloud technology has evolved over the last, let's, let's say, five years again, just to give a good, good frame of time reference. Wow, the evolution of cloud, I would say it is, first of all, accelerating. So the pace of innovation, the feature sets that roll out just happen more frequently and faster uh, every year than we saw Okay, so it's not a situation ago. where most of the big advancements have been made and it's all available now. It's sort of a, almost a commodity. It can be used and it's sort of there for everybody, but it's, it's actually evolving and getting better still at an exponential rate, you're saying? I, th that's my opinion. Yeah, I, th mm -hmm. I think if we, if we looked at the stats, that's probably still the case. I would say some areas or categories of cloud computing maybe are commoditized is one way to describe it. Uh, you know, storage, database, compute power, Maybe that's commoditized. That's true across all the major cloud providers. Uh, but even within that, there's a whole range of advancements. You know, if you really dig down into cloud-based computing, the compute power and the type of chips that are using, they're optimized for certain tasks and routines. You know, it, is, it can be differentiated. But I'm thinking, you know, continued advancements for us in the area of, for example, computer vision. Like that continues to evolve at a, an incredible rate. You know, the ability to take a camera now, point it at, for example, yard operations outside of a distribution center, right? A camera can now monitor trucks, uh, where, they're, where they're moving to and from, how fast they're moving, the type of truck that it is. In fact, there's technology now where uh, an open developer, developer's kit can be added to a regular camera and all of a sudden make it intelligent. Um, so, so that's mm -hmm. a really good example of an advancement in technology that continues to evolve. And that's just one area of, of many. And then this other idea of maybe connecting these together, you get ex exponential uh, value in connecting new technologies together. So if you took computer vision plus machine learning, then you can take that example of my, my trucks, the, the trucks at the yard in the DC, but then apply it across many facilities, right? That's just one facility, but imagine if a, a customer has, and often they do, you know, 100, 150 facilities around the world where they can start to exchange data, uh, make improvement based on one observation at a yard versus another. And that amount of information that's collected through telemetry, cameras, other systems like warehouse management systems, storing that and normalizing it like we talked about earlier and then making rapid decisions on it is kind of remarkable. It's breakthrough. Yeah, talk to us about the joint venture you guys have with Amazon Web Servers. What's that all about and what your role is there? And why are you still tying it all back to the supply chain? 
Yeah, it's pretty exciting. You know, my my so-called Accenture Adventures had like three main chapters, if you will. You know, I joined originally Boris in the supply chain and operations practice. Mm -hmm. I spent about two years in Accenture Innovation and Ventures, helping customers, you know, experience and think about the art of possible in the future. And then I've been in this joint group uh, with AWS for like the last two years. Um, This is a a pretty common model in the industry. You know, you have big big technology players that that have great uh, capabilities and want to scale, of course, but they're not really designed for services at scale. And so here's where technology companies often partner with companies like Accenture and others. Uh, And so that's the formula that we're taking to market. So think AWS technology plus Accenture services can lead to more value faster uh, with our clients. So so that's the basic formula of the group that I'm in. And uh, I'm focused on supply chain. So think about using that those same ingredients, AWS technology such as infrastructure, storage, compute, networking, analytics, but also more advanced capabilities around AI and ML that's called Amazon SageMaker or forecasting technology that's Amazon Forecast, and coupling that with Accenture services, strategy and advisory, consulting, implementation, and even ongoing run. This is sort of operations where Mm -hmm. we can even run one or many parts of a customer supply chain. So so that's what I do. It's pretty exciting, charting a course, along with my colleagues on the AWS side. And and this is a model that Accenture has, in fact, with, with many big technology providers. Uh, across mm-hmm. the planet. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's let's talk about the chief supply chain officer, for example. Would those be the folks that mostly make decisions around applications that are being used in supply chain? Or are they dealing directly with Amazon Web Service and building their own applications on top of that, for example? Like, talk to me about the, the relationship between the different applications they use and then something like Amazon Web Service that you help them implement, for example. Where does that come into play and how do they even work together? Well, one way to think about it is to use an analogy of uh, Lego blocks. Mm-hmm. And And at AWS, that's really the path that they've taken. They have individual technology capabilities. Think of that as a a brick, a Lego block. And they have a lot of them. There's, In fact, there's about 212 of them. And they're new Lego blocks that come out every every year. And their their stated strategy has been to, rather than pre-configure these Lego blocks into an application that may or may not fit into a customer's IT landscape or fit a business need, They've taken a much more open and flexible approach. Lots of Lego blocks. Mm-hmm. So then the uh, responsibility um, or opportunity, depending on how you look at it, rests with the client themselves. So sometimes uh, uh, a client's uh, IT team right, has the level of expertise and knowledge to put the, together the Lego blocks in a way that makes sense. In a lot of other cases, though, this is where global systems integrators like Accenture and others right? Blend industry knowledge, um, say in life sciences or retail or another vertical with horizontal uh, expertise around supply chain planning and execution. And we Mm -hmm. help put the Lego blocks together in a meaningful way. Got it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how, that's how it's, it's working right now. And I think it's a great balance of, you know, flexibility, but also ease of putting these bricks together in a rapid way. Right. We're not talking about, oh, let's think about and design a solution that takes into account six or seven different Lego blocks and it takes a year and a half roughly to deploy. You know, here we're talking weeks or even days. Uh, And that's really where some of the magic of AWS rate of innovation and their cloud delivery model 
yeah, it really is impressive. It's just speed is is so much faster uh, than traditional models. Yeah, I've seen that um, Google Cloud Services. I mean, they're doing something similar, and I've also seen them show up in um, in the world of supply chain, where they're starting to build applications. I mean, real supply chain applications, logistic applications, on top of their cloud stack, so to speak. Is that is Amazon Web Service doing something similar? Or is it always building blocks that can be configured for any purpose, but they're not purpose-built applications like supply chain logistics uh, applications? Well, it's it's an interesting question, and and I would say the answer is that AWS, like the other large cloud providers, will continue with a flexible approach on the foundation, but it is true that they're moving what I'll call up the stack, right? Mm-hmm. Up, up the stack into a more fit-for-purpose business applications, sort of this idea of pre-configured Lego blocks together. And that's happening. I mean, if GC Google Cloud Platform has a couple examples, Microsoft Azure. And on the AWS side, you know, like I mentioned earlier, this idea of Amazon Forecast, um, this is really an important evolution. That that particular area of their uh, technology portfolio went general availability probably a year ago. And if you think about it, what really happened was, you know, as Amazon uh, continued to evolve their physical supply chain network, they also wanted better technology to forecast for their own needs and the needs of their customers. Mm-hmm. And so they they built a forecasting and planning tool and then eventually got to scale and maturity and they made it available to other clients. Which is the Amazon Play, right? Yeah, I can totally imagine that. I can I could I mean I could just envision a whole bunch of solutions coming out from Amazon based on Amazon web servers that are used internally first and then get large and then they get used across the industry and across other industries, right? That's right. There are a couple examples there. Uh, you know, what, another great a great story is where, as Amazon.com start to accelerate, ten, tens of thousands of customers, hundreds of thousands of customers, they, they needed a, a call center support package right, as customers called in. And they couldn't find a commercial off-the-shelf call center software package that fit their needs, so they built one from scratch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that developed, it got mature, and then eventually they turned out externally. That's called Amazon Connect. It's one of the leading web-based call center technology packages on uh, on the planet. Um, Amazon Web Services itself is another great example, right? Amazon sure. created yeah. a whole series yeah. of cloud-based microservices and APIs, and that got to scale, and that went into the market. That's called Amazon Web Services. It's now one of their biggest and most, most profitable businesses. And I wouldn't be surprised, I would say, for those of you that have been reading in the news recently, that the next big wave or evolution would be Amazon making their supply chain and logistics capabilities available externally as well. Which has started, right? Which has started already as fulfillment by Amazon, which is basically their play, right? Where they become a logistics provider for external companies without you having to go sell through the platform, but it's, it's fulfillment by Amazon, right? Yeah, that's for people right. People selling on their platform for people not selling on the platform. Yeah, if you look back just a couple of weeks ago, in fact, there was a press release uh, introducing a new program called Buy with Prime, and maybe you know the majority of consumers didn't really pay attention, but it's really important. And and described simply, it's the ability now for any seller or merchant uh, can operate and in and interact with their customers directly, right, direct to consumer over their own website, and basically configure and add a buy with prime button on their own website and what that means is as a customer engages in a sale even though they're buying the product quote unquote off amazon it'll be fulfilled by amazon so so the 
channels now are going to be much wider for Amazon and other companies to take advantage of this massive infrastructure that, that they've invested in, which, by the way, is no small change. We Industry research suggests that they've invested over $200 billion U.S. since 2015 in their logistics network. So that's resulted in the massive infrastructure that we all read about, 500 distribution centers, 60,000 trucks and vans, 45,000 warehouse robots, 85 cargo planes by this point. You know, they're moving more packages mm-hmm. per year than, than FedEx. So it's pretty impressive. And as they continue to externalize that, much the same way they did with Amazon Web Services, right? Now, businesses, enterprise-grade businesses and others can take advantage of that in the market. Yeah. So what kind of clients are you working with? What sort of um, implementations are you working on together? Are these mostly large global multinational companies? Are they small medium enterprises? It's all of the above? It's not all of the above. It's the big guys. <laughs> yeah. 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 Accenture's formula over the years will continue. And, and although Amazon caters to companies of all sizes, uh, and Amazon Web Services has the same sort of variety of clients. Um, we operate at the at the intersection of of the biggest enterprises globally. So those with yeah large global complex supply chains, um, multi geography, multi mode. Um, that's sort of our sweet spot, and we think that's where there's a significant value proposition, especially when you connect you know physical and financial together. So this whole idea of Speeding up cash conversion cycles, you know, powered and accelerated by the cloud, uh, can really unlock a ton of value for all three parties uh, involved in that. Yeah, tell me more about some some exciting applications, some exciting stuff that you're making possible with this. Like, what what's some some cool advanced moves that your clients can make as a result of this new technology? Well, I'd say right now we're seeing many examples where customers are uh, looking to advanced engines. Uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence. In the case of AWS, this is called Amazon SageMaker. And, and using that and, and pointing it at uh, planning and forecasting uh, mm-hmm. topics. So the idea of being smarter and more accurate in predictions into the future. So an example might be um, better forecasting for demand and then dynamically allocating inventory uh, based on that demand and the updated inputs in real time. Uh, so, so that's really uh, a really cool part, which is, oh, wow, this whole thing called AI actually being put to work, which this uh, we talked about it earlier, Boris, in the area of data quality or an engine self-learning about how to repair data. But now think about an engine that can self-learn and improve on predictions in the future. It's like the, uh, the supply chain crystal ball that can be trusted mm-hmm. and is based on science. Uh, that's probably one of the most exciting areas uh, recently with our clients, both around demand, forecasting, supply, uh, transport. Um, so that, that's a good example. Yeah. Where do you think things are headed? What's what's coming next? What do you think is the next big thing? I think we'll probably see a continuation of this idea that not all supply chains are created equal. And so the holy grail. Surprise, is, surprise. Yeah, yeah. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. Atherton with a very obvious statement. <laughs> Captain Obvious, but you know, you think about uh, rewinding the clock 50 years ago for some industries and companies, well, it was basically the same supply chain. They had inbound supply and outbound demand, and it was very predictable, and it was the same every time. And of course, that's changed, and it will continue to change this holy grail of a supply chain segment of one, right? So if I'm a customer, um, I'm selling to a specific business or even 
more to the point to a specific consumer like you or me, right? I want to tailor my whole experience around that specific consumer uh, from their, their buying experience to their supply chain and fulfillment experience, right? I want to make it predictable, reliable, easy, and you just can't get to that scale with millions of consumers across the planet without automation and data. And mm -hmm. so kind of connecting all these themes back together, Boris, it's the ability to collect data from lots of sources, normalize it quickly, and then use advanced intelligence to make systematic and accurate decisions. So you can automate a lot of that. If you had a million supply chains, you need automation to, to manage the ones that can be um, managed through, through autonomous approaches, the majority of them, hopefully, and then only focus on a subset where you need to intervene and make advanced decisions. Yeah. So I think that's where, where we're going. Yeah. You talked earlier about your stint or your time at Accenture when you talked about innovations and startups, the startup world. You've spent a lot of time in startup world yourself. If you look back last five years or so, a real new wave or a new emergence of these new breed of tech-enabled, lock-tech startups. A lot of money went into the space. A lot of the prominent you know, unicorns that emerged out of that wave of excitement and new innovation and people flocking to startups in logistics and supply chain like we hadn't really seen at any other time before. Of course, now, as we see the stock prices and IPO markets and, and the ability to access money is sort of darkening a bit. I mean, do you sense the same? I mean, you're in the Bay Area, you are at the pulse of this. Do you feel that this is cooling down? Are you afraid of it cooling down and this all coming to a stop and there was a bubble and now we're sort of exploding? Or is this this hype and this bubble that will burst only related to startups in general, but it will spare, so to speak, logistics and supply chain because the need is so big there and the value that's being created by these startups that innovate in that space is so big that funding will still be available and this whole thing will still thrive. What's what's your take on that? Yeah, my sense is that it will continue. Uh, you know, as I... Across the board or just for the space of logistics and supply chain, lock tech in general? Because I clearly get the sense that, you know, there's there's some there's been some layoffs, there's been some... Some there'll be some down rounds uh, and, and downsizing coming up in very prominent startups. The general sense that I get is that the the, the sort of heyday, the real the, the real <laughs> the fed years are over for now for startups. But maybe that's too early. But I'd love to get your sense because you're very close to the action being being in the Bay Area. Yeah, yeah. I think on that one, well, we'll have to see. Uh, you know, at least in the U.S. with increasing interest rates. You know, is a recession looming here in the future? And how does COVID play out? Uh, some of the political situations around the globe, um, you know, could have a, an impact on, on overall economies and growth across the, across the globe. But that aside, I, I don't see investment subsiding uh, into mm -hmm. startups in supply chain and logistics. Uh, I think it will continue. I mm -hmm. think, you know, this is all exacerbated by COVID, of course, labor shortages, the need for more automation and technology, for example, in warehouses, basically fewer employees yep. available, heightens the need yep. for automation. And uh, you're seeing that in the newspaper every day. I mean, there's still lots of money going into into startups. Uh, and also to, it's sort of interesting, I think the world of warehousing is a very hot area for investment. You know, mm -hmm. this idea of positioning inventory closer to your customers, maybe inside of cities, even retrofitting stores to become micro fulfillment centers. Uh, there's a lot of press right now around uh, private equity and other sources of funding investors 
um, getting into the warehouse and facility area, uh, which is pretty exciting as well. Um, so I think it'll continue. You know, you're, I'm excited for those uh, those companies. I, uh, I wish them nothing but the best, sort of generation two. Me uh, too. To I'm take. rooting. I'm a total. I'm a total startup. I wouldn't call it fanboy because I'm also critical of some business models and valuations that make no sense. But but I generally just want startups in that space to succeed and be successful. And, and I want t tons of um, unicorn startup founder making tons of money and then reinvesting it in smaller startups and starting it all over again. That's a, that's a beautiful thing. It, it really is. And I think you're seeing it with a lot of these companies also the integration of being sustainable and sort of doing this while having the best interests uh, of citizens and, and sort of our globe um, in mind. So uh, that, that's really nice to see as well. And, uh, and some of the sort of philanthropic uh, aspects can come with some of that success too. Yeah. But now you're working for a company that, what, has like 700,000 employees. You're in the big corporate world now. Do you ever itch back to get back into the, to the smaller startup world? Uh, maybe. You're right. I, Accenture, it's public <laughs> public information. We're up in over 700,000 employees. 700,000. Crazy. Globally, yeah. it's, it's, I think, <laughs> roughly the twice the size of Iceland. I was just in Reykjavik the other month, a fantastic place. But to think that my company's maybe twice as big as their entire population brings a lot of variety, which is great, and capability. We have a really diverse workforce. I, I'm a true believer that innovation and creativity is accelerated through a sort of a range and a diversity of thought. Um, but in any case, mm -hmm. that, that's one of the, one of the big advantages of, uh, of a big company like Accenture. So would I return to the startup world? Well, you never know. Boris, yeah, uh, that's got its advantages too. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm just happy that you got your eyes peeled on that space again of logistics supply chain. You've, you've taken the eyes off a little bit for a small stint of time, but now you're you're back in business. That's where you belong. So <laughs> fantastic. Yeah, awesome. thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be back in that zone. It's just a fascinating one that's always changing. John, it was great talking to you about technology and supply chain, logistics related stuff. Always a great conversation. Thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Thanks, man. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, it's a, it's an honor to be part of the logistics tribe. I can't wait to tell my mom uh, that I'm here on the <laughs> podcast. Right. So hi, mom. Thanks for listening in. <laughs> there you go. Thanks, John. Take care. Until next time. Thank you. All right. That was the Logistics Tribe podcast episode with John Atherton from Accenture. If you enjoyed today's show, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any of the future episodes. I'm Boris Felgentreer. Until next time. <laughs>